If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of And Security for All. I'm Kim Hakem, your host, and thank you, everyone, for joining another week of another great show. I hope everyone is having a great week and ready for a long Memorial Day weekend. I hope wherever you are, it's nice and the weather is beautiful and you can get out behind, behind your computers and get outdoors. Um, I know... Last weekend, or I, I'm not even sure, maybe the weekend before, it was Mother's Day, and we had rain all weekend, so very much looking forward to a beautiful weekend here in the Midwest. Um, after Memorial Day weekend, we're heading back out to Denver and for our annual uh, local cybersecurity conference. Super excited about that. We have some great speakers out there. We have uh, the CISO from uh, Repay, Real-Time Electronic Payments, and we have um, the CISO out there from... Um, he is from Morgan Chase, and we had the CISO from Bank America. So super excited to be out there. If you happen to be in the Denver area, make sure you check us out on futureconevents.com so you can um, join us. We'd love to see you in person. As always, all of our events are ran in a virtual mode. So if you can't make it out to Denver, you can always log in virtually. Today, actually, we had our key, we're having a uh, we had a virtual event, and our keynote speaker um, was uh, Catherine, Kathleen Morardi, and she is um, the CTO. And today she was speaking, she's the CTO from the Center of Internet Security. And today she was speaking on what is it about internet security. Um, we are about to find out. And she was also talking about transforming information security. So, what does that exactly mean? And what does. Um, the Center of Internet Security, what is it all about? So sorry, I've been a little tongue-tied today, but let me uh, stop all this nonsense of my tongue-tiedness and let's welcome Kathleen to the show. Sorry, Kathleen, <laughs> I was messing everything up today, but you're here now and thanks for being on the show. It's um, sometimes that uh, when I don't hear our intro in the beginning, that trumps me up a little bit. So thanks for being here. Understandable. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm great. It's It's been a really good day to be here first with your event this afternoon. That was just a really great engaged audience and look forward to this as well. So thank you. Well, I was going to talk a little bit about your bio and um, I actually have your book that you were in. It's right behind me. Uh, you know, the women, a uh, hundred women fascinating females fighting cybercrime. You've done a bunch in your career. And um, I want to talk a little bit before we get into, I know today um, you were talking about transformation, inf transformation, information, transforming information security. I want to find out what exactly that means. But um, before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about your career and 
what you're doing at the Center for Internet Security and what is internet security and all kinds of questions for you because I don't often get a chance to have many women on the show. So when I do have women on the show, it is so great because I am, you know, advocating for more and more women to be in the space, be our speakers. You were our speaker out in Boston last year. And it is really, really tough finding women to step up to speaking roles. So thank you and kudos for all you're doing. But can you tell us a little bit about you and how you got into the industry and how your career started and how you ended up a CTO? Sure. It was a long journey. So I look a little younger than I am. So back back when I was in college, there was one professor who was a really large influence at Siena College. That was my undergrad, um, Mr. Matthews. And uh, if he's listening in, so he had a really big impact by providing nudges at the right times and didn't even like computers when I was starting out. So uh, I had registered as a math major and I did complete my BS in mathematics, but wound up getting the equivalent credits for a degree in computer science in undergrad, largely due to the nudges from Mr. Matthews saying, hey, why don't you take this other course? Then you'll get a certificate or you'll complete a concentration or, well, if you take this other course, you can complete another certificate. Um, so he was a large influence. And not only that, I had planned just to go to graduate school. And I had my heart set on computer graphics because it would mix math, computers, and art. So three things I really liked. Um, but again, Mr. Matthews nudged me to interview while um employers were on campus just for the interview experience. And he said, you know, you're a real student. I know you're going to go on and get your degree. So just do this for the experience. Okay. Well, then an opportunity rolled by to um, work for PSINet, which is the first commercial internet service provider. And I had an internship at the time at the Waterville Elite Arsenal nearby and, you know, the people I was working with said, no, you can't pass up this opportunity. Networking is going to be the next big thing. So with my graduate school applications, one of the schools I was accepted into was Rensselaer, which is right down the road. And so I was able to accept the position at PSI and get my master's on time as if, you know, I was not working and that's where it began because PSINet was just incredible exposure to every protocol and getting really deep into each protocol and um, really learning them, which really it set a path for later in my career. Because by understanding those base layer protocols, I actually wound up developing one and uh, I put forth the first standard for communicating incident response information. And when I came up with this, it was part of a SANS competition through, you know, at some point in my career, I'm not sure when I wrote it exactly. But then when I was working at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, they said, hey, this is pretty good. We'll sponsor you to go off to the IETF to see if this can get integrated so that it could help the community. And that was back in 2000, 2001, when I did that work. And basically, it was a submission to SANS initially, and they said this was the best submission, so why don't you put it to the IETF? And then Lincoln Labor MIT Lincoln Laboratory said, yep, we'll sponsor you. While I was at Lincoln, I was the head of information security on the unclassified side, and 
you know, was just doing really great work with great people uh, with amazing exposure because their research, it's years ahead in some cases. So, you know, in managing the operation side, but having exposure to the research was a wonderful combination. And then the support to get engaged in the IETF was also incredible. That laid groundwork. Um, I stayed there for seven years and went on to Dell. Uh, well, so RSA, then EMC, then Dell. And that's important because during that time period, I was in a role uh, initially uh, consulting, and that moved into one where I was helping to manage the security consulting team, which meant I got to go out to hundreds of customers, both for projects as well as quality assurance and pre-sales. And that exposure is invaluable. Um, But after doing that for a few years, and then this work from the IETF was picking up, EMC at the time said, hey, we'd like you to come to the office of the CTO. And I had more support again to go back to the IETF. Well, through that work and other areas, I was involved in the IETF. The area directors approached me, I guess, 2013 maybe, and said, hey, we'd like you to put your name in the hat for IETF security area director. And I thought, me, really? So that was, um, that was a surprise to me. And it was an incredible experience. So I did wind up getting selected for two terms, uh, 2014 and 2016. So they're two-year terms. And that meant I was managing half of the IETF working groups in the security area. And uh, and my colleague, who was the co-security area director, managed the other half. And we were both reading every standard published in that four-year time period. And so that was incredible exposure. So I, I had three different roles over time where I was a CISO equivalent. But to get to a CTO, it was really the IETF work that made a difference because I was reading all of the standards across the board from the IETF. And so that bounced me back out in terms of, yes, I still had a security focus, but it was more distributed. And then uh, coming out of the role as an IETF area director, I had just learned so much about um, what was happening across these different areas, what different companies were doing, how protocols might evolve in the next few years that I wrote a book. And that's uh, Transforming Information Security. And I was also concerned with the uh, number of resources being used to manage security and could we change it? And that's a major theme throughout the book in terms of can we push different architectural patterns so that we could scale management of IT and security better over time in addition to having it built in by design and by default, something that the U.S. government is really pushing right now. So that was really big. And then an opportunity at CIS came up and uh, an employee at the time reached out and said, hey, Kathleen could you put your name in the hat for CTO? And this was during, or right before the pandemic, actually. So I put my name in the hat and went through the interview process and was really excited about CIS. And it's because of the mission. And it aligned so much with the altruistic parts of my book and to be able to support that mission and really something that I independently believed in to then join a team of people who also really want to see security democratized, security more pervasive. Um, So it was just an amazing opportunity and I jumped at it. So can you tell us what um, is the center of internet 
security? Like, is where is it headquartered? And I know you explained this to me when we were out in Boston, but I think a lot of people have no idea what that is. Okay, great. Um, so Center for Internet Security is, uh, the, the headquarters is in East Greenbush, New York, and there's also offices in the D.C. area, Washington, D.C. area. And um, let's see. So there's two major areas of the business. One is the security best practices, which many of you might be familiar with because you might be uh, supporting benchmarks and um, uh, benchmarks, meaning how do you secure an operating system? How do you secure an application? And our teams work with experts globally who go through a consensus process to develop those benchmarks, you know, and the guides initially started, I guess, about um, in the late 90s, early 2000s with the NSA, and they were hardening guides. Now they've evolved to the CIS benchmarks, and we support them working with experts to make sure we come to good consensus decisions um, and provide good guidance on how do you harden a system. So those guides are available for, I think, well over 100 applications, and they're growing. They're growing based on community input and demand. What's useful? What can we um, what can we support that makes sense for the community? What would be beneficial to the community? Uh, so that's one area. And then there is the CIS critical security controls. Uh, used to be known as the SANS Top 20. And that's another uh, important document that CIS has taken over and runs and supports with not only a community consensus process, but also the community defense model as it's known. So there's a document on the community defense model and it's a really great resource that explains our process because the CIS critical security controls are different from frameworks, uh, from just frameworks, because it provides a prioritization of controls based on the real threat seen today. And so in recent versions, I believe the last two versions, there's something called implementation groups and the first implementation group is set up so that you can pick the controls that will have the most impact on your environment to address the five threats or attacks seen most on the internet today. So that's pretty powerful because you could use it as board justification for making changes to your environment. So even if you have a well-deployed program and you're aligned to ISO 27001, you could pivot on the CIS critical controls to know what you're going to get the most bang for your buck on. And so that's a really cool document out of our best practices team and um, a great way to be able to use it, whether you're beginning your program or you're a very mature organization deciding what do we do next? What low hanging fruit can we address? What can we, um, what's going to have the most meaning to protect our environment? So those are really useful. Then on the other really important uh, side of, also really important side of our business is the multi-state information sharing analysis center and the election infrastructure information sharing and analysis center. So our operation and security services team does a wonderful job supporting the state, local, tribal, and territorial organizations of the United States. So let's say one of them has a ransomware attack. They call us, right? Our teams help them with recovering and, uh, you know, getting back up line, uh, online, but they also help with proactive services. We have a number of free services 
that are um, funded through the U.S. government, things like malicious domain name blocking services, where these entities can just plug in a different domain name service and are able to have blocking services to prevent them from going to malicious sites. Uh, There's endpoint protection services. There's, you know, a number of other things that might otherwise be inaccessible to the state, local, tribal, and territorial organizations. So it's a really powerful service that helps these organizations that themselves are underfunded. And in some cases, we're able to offer some things for free. Um, Intrusion detection services is another one. And in some cases, it's offered at a cost that you might only get on a per user basis if you're a big company. But we make it possible for these smaller entities at that same negotiated lower cost when when it's not possible to do something for free. So there's really some great uh, services there. How long has this organization been established? CIS. So I believe it, I think it's 21 years because last year I got an ornament for the 20 year anniversary. So Okay. So it is a government organization? Is it? No, it's a nonprofit. It's, oh, okay. Yeah. So it's a nonprofit and, um, you know, distinguished specifically to not be a, a U.S. government organization, but there is funding for the MSI SAC and EII SAC through the federal government. Through a, I would imagine a lot of these small companies probably have no idea that CIS exists or how do you, I mean, I guess this is one way of getting the word yes. out about it. And um, now does your um, center, do you have a CIO, a CISO, and as yourself, the CTO? Yes. And what are you, um, I like to try to break this down for our listeners on Insecurity for All. Can you explain to them what the differences of all three of those roles are? And why did you decide to um, not be a CISO anymore and go to a CTO? Um, maybe because you're so uh, smart. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so a, let's, we'll start with CISO. I've done that three different times and I did enjoy it each time. Um, the first time I was at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, which is a super unique environment. Um, so the CISO is responsible for managing the security of the organization, sometimes the risk also, but in some cases you have a separate um, chief risk officer. Um, the CISO would also you know, work hand in hand with legal or a compliance officer to make sure that you're meeting any regulatory requirements. So it can be very prescriptive, right, in terms of you have to meet specific um, specific controls. You're measured against frameworks. Uh, it's a very organized. Um, it can get to be a very organized look on things, um, so that you're meeting every control. You know, in that sense, it's a very interesting job because you um, you might have the incident response team reporting to you and then the team that maybe is more focused on protective controls and you get this purview over, you know, each of those teams uh, as well as having insight to the current state of the security program, what's coming next, what should you be on the lookout for? Things like the CIS critical controls can help with that pivoting. Um, you have to stay on top of trends for security specifically because you have to evolve your network with where threat actors are growing. So you have to stay on top of that. So it, there, there are some um, parts that can be more cookie cutter, right? So compliance, 
management to framework where you you can nail it down a bit more. And then some parts that you absolutely can't, right? That will continue to evolve because threat actors are evolving and capabilities evolve. Um, so, uh, you know, so that's more of the, the role of a uh, CISO. And a CIO is managing all of the infrastructure and they have to work hand in hand. And at CIS, myself, the CIO, and CISO, we all work hand in hand because it's really important to make sure that we're all communicating, all of these functions are happening in concert, and that we're supporting each other uh, where there's handoff or where we can tap on each other for our expertise, knowledge, uh, or experience. And um, so the CIO is managing all the infrastructure. They're you know, concerned with um, you know, what's hosted in the cloud versus what's hosted on-prem, what kind of equipment are we using? How we might evolve that? What does the uh, network architecture look like? What is the enterprise architecture look like? And they're going to have to communicate quite a bit with the security architect. Um, and as CTO, I'll have some input to those decisions, right? So I might provide some guidance, uh, some overall. Uh, I, I teach a course on security architecture and design. So when those topics come up, I love to get involved in them. Um yeah, so those are some of the the differences between those positions. And for me, I moved to be a CTO because I've done the CISO role, you know, three times. And I'd say by far the the most lively of the environments was at Lincoln Laboratory because it's sixty five percent PhDs. So you can't do anything without having a long discussion on it and really knowing your stuff very deeply technically, or you're not going to be able to do anything in your program. And I enjoyed that, right? So no other uh, position was quite as challenging from that regard in terms of the, um, you know, the, the discussions. And I, you know, I have that again with the CTO role. Well, congratulations to all your success there, but let's not, no but, but I'm going to transition into transformation, um, transforming information security. So tell us a little about that. And I know you talked um, to, when we were out in Boston, you talked to our attendees about that and you talked to our attendees at our virtual event. Um, Can you just break that down a little bit? That's a big statement and what, you know, what, where would someone start with that? And what does that mean? Okay. So what kicked off the idea, it was, I, I, I tend to pull together ideas from multiple spaces very well. And um, it's, it's not something everyone can do, right? We all have our strengths and we have to work together to come to better products and, and better solutions. And so one of my strengths is being able to synthesize data across spaces and to consider strategy and, um, you know, a, a few other layers all at the same time. What I was seeing in the IETF area director role was some really important trends emerging. Strong encryption was the biggest. And then uh, because of the strong encryption trend, the protocol stack was evolving. So there was things like, hmm, we might see more IPv6 on local networks because if all of my traffic's encrypted with Quick, the Quick protocol or TLS 1.3, how am I going to trace my traffic across the network? Well, if I switched to IPv6, I could use a flow label or I have other mechanisms to mark up a packet so that my network engineers could have insight. And 
there are other examples of the protocol stack evolving. And well, Quick is a really good example because now we're using UDP uh, because it gets across the network a lot faster. So, you know, it is quicker and it's been shown to be quicker. So this is what, these are some of the changes that we're really showing that we'd have, a you know, some big changes ahead. And also, you know, in the book, I call it both um, data-centric security as well as zero trust. I think the, the term zero trust wasn't as firm as it is now. And so they get at the same point in that, we're protecting the data, right? At the end of the day, the business is about the data. And with zero trust, you're getting very close in controls to your data, to your application, and setting up lots of guards and gates so that you're notified and an attacker has a much harder time or hopefully impossible time moving laterally between your systems or even between microservices on systems. So all of this was coming together and... I also was working with operators and taking data in for RFC 8404 on, well, what breaks when we deploy strong encryption? So I was trying to learn from operators and not to prevent strong encryption from happening, which I think some people suspected that was the motive, but it was really to just learn because you can't move forward, in my opinion, unless you know what the blockers are, right? You have to understand the profile and figure out how are you going to go forward. And then the book is, well, how do we embrace strong encryption and how do we move forward? And can we also address the resource problems that we're having? And right now they're at about 700,000 person deficit in the United States for security professionals. So it combines all of those thoughts and uh, provides a path forward where if you look back, and so, uh, you know, I started working in 1995 at PSINet, and we had really highly technical people, and I'm still in touch with a number of them today who are all out doing great work. Um, but we all had our hands into everything, right? I was configuring SendMail CF files, probably a thousand per year for customers, and Bind, and um, which is DNS services. And we were really in the nuts and bolts, right? And so you had really highly, highly technical people who wanted to be able to configure everything. And unfortunately, everything else was built that way, right? So large companies can hire for that type of resource, right? Small, medium businesses cannot. And so the problem is, is we've really backed ourselves into a place where we have this high expectation of having security practitioners deployed at every single organization. So we have to change our thinking and still have the transparency piece, but shift more of that configurability and management over time to the vendor to really scale so that we can um, we can meet the needs of businesses so they can do business online and not worry about security and be protected. So security still has to happen. It's still important. We still need skilled resources, but we have to shift where they are. Well, backing up for just a second, because we had a question a from um, Stephen Grutt. Uh, um, he said, what's your take on groups like Gartner, Forrester, EY, et cetera, et cetera, coining new segments around InfoSec? Oh, can you throw out an example, Stephen? So, uh, and I'll just start answering with what I think you mean. Um, I think it's difficult because we're proliferating this idea that we can just keep adding, Right. We can just keep adding more services and we keep saying everybody needs these services. 
and it doesn't work. We're falling over under all of these services. We can't hire the resources to manage them. And so we really have to redesign to architectural patterns that scale. And that's, that's the heart of what the book gets at. Um, we're falling all over this. I don't know what CTEM is. Um, maybe, maybe you can, uh, like unabbreviate that for us. So we thank know what that you. Is. Yeah. It's hard when you're on the spot without, you know, exactly. No, no. In the middle. I, I do have some questions about those organizations though, but it probably would be way off topic, but, um, you know, with everything happening with, um, you know, chat GPT, you know, um, how are some of those, you know, are some of these groups going to be affected, you know, being so many of them are analysts. What's your thought on that? While we're waiting for Stephen to let us know what CTEM means. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so, you know, my current take is that we'll find use cases where they fit and they complement, but you still need an expert on top of them. Um, you know, I've asked a few questions into BARD and into ChatGPT, the same ones into both to see what I would get. And they provide a little bit different of a response. And there was high accuracy on some of the questions asked. Um, and so that was really good to see. Uh, as a professor, I'm thinking about this, you know, in terms of assignments. Will some of my students just use this as an assignment? Well, I better get used to the format. So I know if they're just copying, pasting something from BARD or chat GPT. Um, but you know what? They might. And perhaps that's okay. Perhaps it's okay to utilize these, um, these resources. But then as an individual, if you're utilizing these resources, I think it's an obligation for you, if you're going to call yourself an analyst, to go back and to verify the sources, to make sure that the AI engine got it right. And then also to dig deeper because you're getting a surface level response, at least, you know, from what I've received so far, that doesn't go deep enough, right? It doesn't necessarily answer all of the full questions. Um, so for analysts, they have to back up their work and you're going to have to dig a bit more to provide sources to back up your assertions uh, from any one of those companies if you're using those resources, but they should, they should be used, right? Because we can do that deeper research if some of those earlier parts can be done for us. I had um, a professor friend of mine before you answer Stephen's question, who is teaching at a school and she did put some of her assignments in chat GPT. And she said that they were coming back as like C plus B minus papers. So they were not. So if you wanted to be that kind of student, like go ahead and use it. But if you are a, you know, a student, it's not going to, not yet. Not yet. It's, you know, who knows, but um, go ahead. But he, but Steven said a continuous threat exposure management, but he said coined by Gartner in a report in 2022, it approached to managing cyber through the lens of relevant, relevant threat. I think it to, it's totally valid. And I am now in that space, but over the last decade, I've seen these groups just continuing new space. Yeah, so we do have to manage threats in that way right now, but it will evolve. Um, it has been evolving, and this is a space I've been in, uh, engaged with since at least the early, or I guess since the 90s, right? Because I was uh, in a CISO equivalent role after I left PSINet in 97 uh, when I finished my master's degree. So um, 
the threat response area will continue to evolve. The interesting thing is if you think about it, not every organization can have such a team. And so that type of area is really catered to large organizations that have resources that can dedicate, you know, some part of their information security office to that type of, uh, of, of, of approach. Um, now, if organizations don't have that capability, they can use something like the CIS critical security controls as a guide to say, what control should I go after first based on the threat seen across industry and mapped. So the CIS critical controls, what happens is each of the safeguards in the controls are mapped to the MITRE attack framework. And then from there, we take data feeds from every major vendor that uh, puts out a threat report that's aggregated and normalized so that we can rank prioritize the safeguards and group them into implementation group one, group two, group three. So if you don't have the resources to put forth such a team, that's an excellent tool that gives you that, that prioritization. Um, and threat response, it's a really tricky area, right? Because organizations are expected to take in threat feeds. And if an organization takes in a threat feed, they usually take in five to eight threat feeds because they're afraid to miss a single indicator of compromise. If you get a feed from the MSI SAC, uh, that actually, we do integration of, I think, over 200 feeds. And so our team normalizes that data. So you're already getting, you know, that that kind of rich data from one source, which is good. And that's another thing, like pay attention to your sources where you're getting data, because maybe somebody's already aggregating some of this data for you and you're doing it a second time by getting more threat feeds. Um, and when you get a threat feed, how does that get integrated into your products? What's efficient? So I have a whole blog on this. Um, because I guess I'm a bit frustrated in the space and that it's really designed for those with lots of resources. At the MSI SAC, we take that threat feed and it gets integrated into our IDS products that go out for the state, local, tribal, and territorial organizations that use it. And that's super powerful because they don't have the resources to integrate a threat feed into their IDS and do all this customization, right? So being able to do that for them is probably where we make, you know, some of the biggest differences in terms of threat detection work. But if an organization is expected to take in a threat feed and then apply it out to all the products that require it in their environment, most can't do that, right? And so there's only a few that are at that level. And we've been at this threat sharing models now for like 20 years. Um, and it's really just the largest organizations that can handle that. Um, or even like a threat hunter, right? That's another expectation put on us is that we hire, a, a, you know, somebody that hunts out threats to find the, um, the attacker on your network. So we've just modeled security in a way that's too difficult for small and medium businesses, uh, as well as any other cyber underserved organization. As Steven said, um, I'll find a, oh, he said, he totally agrees and he'll find uh, the blog. Sounds very insightful. I'll reach out to you on LinkedIn. Thanks okay. for all your hard work in the industry. And that's exactly what I was sitting here thinking is that I really hope you're at the best possible place you can be because you're so intelligent and so well-informed. We want to make sure that you're providing, you know, our cyberspace the best that you can provide because does it ever just get to be too much? Like, 
like that there's so much to keep up with. And you talk a lot about IoT security and how do you even keep up with that? I mean, I, I, I don't even, I, I, most people probably could not wrap their heads around how you keep up with that. So I have a great team and luckily I was able to hire on another person recently and, um, Every time I get on a call with her, she's amazing. She says, uh, what else can I take off your plate? That's, That's got to be my, my favorite expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a great team and, you know, I'm able to task out things to the team. And they're also in a, a learning mode. Both are recent um, graduates with master's degrees and they're sponges, right? So they love learning. They love researching. Oh, and they happen... Uh, I was aware of their level of research before joining, which was a great aid. Um, So one thing I can think across spaces, which is different, but I can also compartmentalize. So that's how I personally don't get overwhelmed. Um, I'm able to think about IoT separate from this bigger picture. Yes, it all fits together so I can plug that back in. And my team tries to stay focused on the future for CIS and the future for securing Uh, organizations that are underserved better. So the themes of projects we take on, you know, typically are going after that, uh, which we just published last week, an IoT guidance document. And so this falls under, you know, it's, it's a security best practice potential. And it's a test to see, you know, is this useful? So we need to know from industry, is this IoT guide useful? And it Basically, what happened was I took a look across the space a few years ago, and this was after the executive order for cybersecurity went out and then the subsequent IoT cybersecurity executive order. And there was a call for NIST to do labeling of IoT so that you would know what you're getting in your your IoT. But um, it seems that it was really difficult to figure out what do you put on your IoT device, right? What protocols should I support? And then from those protocols and the the whole protocol stack, the combined protocols from the physical layer up to the application layer, what does that look like and how do I secure each layer? Each IoT vendor, before we publish this, would have to go out and say, well, I think I want to use this application language. So what does it work with? What are the underlying layers that I need in the protocol stack? Or what are my options? What else could I use as a base? And then because of those choices, what are the security properties of each? So what's my final product going to look like? And I doubt many vendors would put the resources to figuring out all of those answers before beginning their development. And they could get stuck, right? They could get stuck in a particular design decision without being fully informed. So um, Ben Carter and Caitlin Drape began the work to uh, look across these spaces. And I I guided them through the process to first try to figure out what are the common protocol stacks out there. And they did that work. And then I worked with them to figure out what's the security measures on them. Then we pulled in experts from all different parts of the IoT industry. So we would get a multifaceted view to shape up the document. And it's aimed at helping vendors make these initial security decisions or even going back to say, what could I do better in my product? 
So basically, if we're going to ask vendors to shift left, did they have any resources to do that? Well, this is an aim to give them the resources to aid that shift left so they can build security in by design and by default. So we'd love feedback. You know, is this a useful guide? Does it help an organization? Does it help your vendors? And then we'd like to figure out what else we can do to help really with that that shift left and making security more democratized. So are you just working, what kind of organizations are you working with to get this information out to the vendors and the customers or the larger, you know, companies that may not be a vendor, but maybe they're the person that's developed, you know, the picture frame that you plug in, you know, another IOT device that's in someone's house that they may have no idea is a threat to them. Yeah, so right now, um, so the team has presented at some IoT-focused conferences to launch it. We have a few um, podcasts planned, and they're submitting to other conferences to get out in front of the right audiences. Um, You know, one of the presentations was to the ICS uh, joint working group uh, through CISA, and that was in Salt Lake City a couple of weeks ago to launch it. We'd love more ideas in terms of how do we get it out to to the vendors, um, you know, and, and they're putting in submissions to present in other places. And also the expert reviewers that we had on the document, several of them have been promoting it as well, and they're at IoT vendors. Do you, um, just fun fact, do you have any IoT devices in your home? <laughs> Well, so funny you say that. I try to limit what is online for my home. And I've done this for years because I used to give an example in my talk, like what happens if I'm away and I live in the Boston area and my heating system is online and it's winter. What if somebody attacked my device and then my pipes freeze? So yeah, I'm, I'm too uh, too nervous to do that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I totally hear you, like just being in this industry and all these conferences that I've been putting on for years. I I have a fireplace. I, I do have a, you know, a, a, a gas fireplace, but I have another fireplace that's just wood burning. And I'm like, I'm, and everyone's like, you need to change that. And I'm like, nope, if we have an attack, at least I can get heat in my house. <laughs> you know, I'm going to keep propane tanks in my garage. You know, I mean, I am going to keep wood in my backyard, you know, and that's just, I'm going to keep water bottles. That is from all these speakers, you know, that I hear. I mean, I actually have Amazon once a month deliver me water bottles because we had a keynote speaker out in California that worked for the, you know, California Department of Water. And I was like, if we have a, you know, attack on our water, you, you want to have water. So, so I'm a little yeah. neurotic when it comes to that stuff, but I probably is not as neurotic as I do have a lot of smart TVs and stuff in my <laughs> home. And that's because I have children, not children, but teen, you know, yeah. young people that live in my home, it's hard to isolate those IOT devices so, um, but we did, it looked like, uh, Anita Monte asked for your blog and then Steven shared it. So that's all, that's awesome. And it's always awesome to, um, thanks for all of our, you know, viewers, our listeners that are coming in. Um, are you finding like when you first got into the industry, you know, going back to, I, um, tried to make this mission, 
um, in 2022 and it, and it worked in 22, but not as much in 23 is to make sure I have some really relevant, um, women leaders at our events, you know, sitting on our panels and keynote speaking. And it's been really tough. As a matter of fact, um, I'm still looking for someone in Denver cause I got beat up pretty bad on LinkedIn with another woman telling me, you know, shame on you for not having a woman on your panel. Well, it's not as easy as that. I am open. I, anyone out there, please, please, you know, reach out to me, but are, how is that with you being a woman leader like yourself? And, um, do you, do you, um, are you finding other peers that are at your level that are like-minded like you? Are are you seeing the growth? You said you had some new um, young ladies. Are you seeing some of the growth of the women in cyber? I am. I'd say from the, I teach two master's level courses at Georgetown and the distribution in the course of male, female is promising, at least for the courses I teach. And one important point I make um, from students in my security architecture class, architecture and design class, and I say this to anyone that comes to me in the beginning that says, I'm not technical. And I tell them, well, this is the course that's going to make you technical. And I'm going to work with you. And we are going to make sure you know all of this topic, uh, the topics covered. And by the end of this course, you will be far deeper than a lot of the colleagues in the workplace, because I'm going to teach you the underpinnings that really aren't taught much anymore so that you can layer upon those. And then as technology changes, you can adapt because you understand the underpinnings, which I think is missing from a lot of curriculums. So, um, so I am encouraging them male, female, anyone in my courses, because I want them to be as strong and enabled as possible so that they can also be leaders. Uh, So I'm seeing promise there. Um, And then in terms of like other women CTOs, I actually realized recently, I know quite a few. And I think it's just the women that I've grown up with in industry that I've known for a long time, they're moving into C-level positions, right? So it's... um, there's some really impressive ones, and I, I can probably help you with some connections. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, for some other women that I think are, you know, shining stars. And um, But you're right. There aren't many. I just happen to know them from circles I've been in. Well, I was lucky, like the book, that book that came out from Steve Morgan a few years ago, you know, I was able to connect with a lot of women in cyber through there. And occasionally I'll see um, someone on LinkedIn will do shout outs and they'll start tagging a bunch of women. And whenever I see that, I'll start connecting with them so I can find speakers. And then, um, then people will reshare and tag. And um, yeah, so, uh, so it's it's great to, but of course you know I never I want I never want to insult the men out there because we have some amazing men mm-hmm. you know leaders that ha- are great great speakers at my events I, I'm open to men women but again I am just trying to make it more diverse to not get you know people saying you know that I I only want men that doesn't even make sense to me that I would only want men at my events you know right. I'm a big supporter of women but um Anita said I have to oh she has to run but um yeah I hope uh it's definitely will be recorded uh, this session and um Anita you can always go to our um future page and you can find all of our 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 recordings 
because um, Kathleen was our Boston speaker um, last year on our YouTube page. We have all of our past speakers, but we're we we probably have about five minutes left. Um, you know. Some of the other things that we were talking about, um, you know, IoT security built in and by default, um, again, going back to what I was asking, does it just get too overwhelming? And what should somebody, what would be some of your advice where to start, you know, so it's not so overwhelming? Right. So I guess um, it would help to know what, what vantage point are you starting from? If you're an individual at home, I think it's just too hard, right? So um, be careful about what you do. Um, You know, if you, uh, certain devices join a mesh network and then all of a sudden your internal network is meshed with your neighbor's external network, right? So um, it's getting tricky. You know, and this is not really, I I think you're a great person to ask this question to. Um, My daughter, she lives in New York and we were talking about TikTok and um, why she shouldn't have TikTok on her phone. And it's very hard to talk to someone, you know, anywhere between 15 and 25 or maybe 30 or older lately, why you shouldn't have TikTok on your phone. And I'm like, well, because all the experts say you shouldn't. And they're like, well, can you give me a better answer? So what would your answer be on that? Gosh, so I have not researched this thoroughly. I do not have it on my phone. Um, I'd say I could see the addictive nature of it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I have looked at a few uh, TikToks and uh, yeah, the addictive nature is good. So I guess there's a few layers to this, right? Do you want to be spending your time on that? Yes, sometimes we need a brain break and I think that provides it. Um, But I think the concern with TikTok is the ownership of it uh, in China, right? So your data is collected and managed there. We've given up a lot of our personal data that's managed by all these different social media companies. So just in general, I think you need to be careful about what data you put where, what you're watching, um, what gets pushed to you, right? So advertisers are getting streams. Where are they getting them from? If you've typed something in in one thing, are you getting an an advertisement in another? Um, And for China, it might be more patterns that are being observed just about cultural differences, cultural norms and identity differences between uh, people from the U.S. And so Russia is typically the um, set of nation state threat actor that goes after discord, but other nations have been helping with that, right? So if TikTok streams are getting pushed at you, that might help divide opinion, right? And to grow some divide. Um, you know, CISA has a great, uh, it's old now, um, uh, thing on the pineapple pizza debate. So if you haven't seen that yet, look up CISA and pineapple pizza And like, it's a whole thing. People either like it or they don't, right? But it's a way to sow divide. And there are so many more controversial topics where divide has been sown and that weakens us as a nation. So those are, those are things I think you have to watch out for because, um, you know, if they know it, if they understand our culture better, then they can help to divide us more. 
Are there any other things before we wrap up today that you would suggest to the younger generation, the next generation? I know you talked about there are too many IoT devices to even wrap your head around, but are there anything that would stick out to you? What advice would you want to give them? So my, I have a seven-year-old and I do not allow him on YouTube right? I don't want other things popping up. So I think some of the, the dangers for that younger set is really manage what they have. Um, my kid is pretty smart, but if I haven't given him access to things, he doesn't know how to use them, right? Even though he could figure it out if I showed him once or twice. Um, you know, So there is a browser on his phone, but he doesn't know how to get to YouTube. He doesn't know how to use the browser. He knows how to use the apps I've let him use. I think that kind of control is really important because during the pandemic, the age range that content that should not be viewed by young people um, went down, right? So I think it was targeting more like eight-year-olds instead of 11-year-olds for uh, inappropriate content. And so that's something I think to, to really watch for that really young set is just manage what they're getting into. Um Really think about what kind of access you're giving them and monitor, monitor what they're, you know, viewing. So make sure you have a way to really understand what they're viewing. Maybe sit with them to see what's coming in on their ad streams and might tell you other things that they're doing when you're not sitting with them or when they're on a free Wi-Fi somewhere. Um, that way you can help them and guide them and talk to them and have the conversations you need to have. Yeah, we have a long road ahead of us because... Um, mm-hmm. It's only going to get more and more overwhelming, but there are there are lots of things you can do to control your children. You know, there are devices there, you know, our, our service providers do give us a lot of good access that you can, you know, set set standards and times that they can be on their browser. It's just when they start getting smart and they can figure out ways around it. But um, Kathleen, thank you so much for being on the show today. It went by so fast, everyone. Um, we will post... Um, Kathleen's um, blog in there and you can find her on LinkedIn. We'll have all that and you can find her book and everything else she's doing amazing in the uh, cyber community. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for spending uh, this past hour with us and also uh, keynoting another event with us. So everyone, I hope you guys have a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, 
Go to futurecountyevents.com or email info at futurecountyevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at futureconhq. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.